you are listening to Single Service. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Jake Rudin is a co-founder of the design career consulting company Out of Architecture, a career consulting firm helping architects exploring the value of their skills both in and out of the architectural profession. He also works as a member of the Adidas Advanced Creation Technologies team, fabricating, designing, digitizing, model making, and exploring all aspects of footwear. I invited Jake to have a conversation so he can share his insights on challenges facing practicing and non-practicing architects alike and what one can do about it. So Jake, it's a really uh, a real pleasure to have you join me today for this conversation uh, that is near and dear to my heart. Arno, thank you so much for inviting me. I've been really looking forward to this discussion. And uh, I think, as you mentioned, you know, um, my my interests are all over the place. I think what's really fun about the profession that we work in is that it has so many varied aspects and tentacles that reach into all of these elements of design and so on. So hopefully we'll uh, touch on many of these facets over the conversation, but I'm really excited to be here. So am I. So uh, let's start with a really hard question. Can you tell us who you are and what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? Yes. I am Jake Rudin. That is the first sentence. The second sentence is that I am a professional problem solver and someone who is interested in simply learning constantly. I'll qualify that later, but that'll be sentence two. And for sentence three, I think I work both at the intersection of technology and design through my work at Adidas, where I use digital tools and technologies to design footwear and to support in, in manufacturing. Semicolon, I also run a consulting firm called Out of Architecture with my co-founder, Aaron Pellegrino. And that recently has become much more uh, than a side project as it has taken on a life of its own. So that'll so be my three sentences. That's perfect. You're you're such a, a good rule follower. Good on you. <laughs> um, so you left architecture. Can you tell us why? I have elaborated on that in, in many, many other uh, podcasts. And so for people who are really interested in that deep story, it exists elsewhere. But I will say that here, I left architecture because I found it to be a lot less creative than I really desired. I came out of school. I found that there was a huge disconnect between the kinds of um, varied problems and challenges that I was solving in the studio setting and the work that I was being not only asked to do, but almost forced to do in the profession. Um, and I certainly found that there were many different ways um, that, you know, those challenges arose. Um, and really at the end of the day, um, I knew that there was a place for me to practice architecture as I saw it, architecture as I knew it should be, which is just this amazingly fun and wild confluence of the making of things and the experiences that they produce. Mm -hmm. Now I have to stand up and wave so that the light will come back on in the space, but... <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully that tells you a little bit. I mean, there are some uh, some really strong anecdotes. I was told uh, after interviewing for a digital innovation role at an architecture firm that that position that I was looking for didn't exist in the profession, um, which was, you know, I had interest in VR and game design and CNC milling and additive manufacturing. So that was a bit frustrating. I also had some pretty standard experiences, you know, really long, really outrageous hours um, that I was very comfortable putting in, but wasn't receiving the kind of value back from either my workplace or my peers or my bosses um, mm -hmm. that I felt I should be getting both, both monetarily and also just in terms of 
appreciation, you know, for, for the love and the work that I was putting in. So those were some of the reasons I left. So what would be some of the things you've learned since you've left and pivoted to other kind of jobs? Well, my very first um, role out of architecture was uh, working as the director of business development for a small tech startup. And that title, director of business development, was extremely foreign to me. I really I learned nothing in school about pipelines or CRM, which is customer resource management, or you know all of these tools of sales and marketing and advertising. Um, but I found them very intuitive as mm-hmm. someone who was interested in always learning what is it that my clients need? What is it that you know they're really after getting to the root of their problem and then trying to design a solution around it? So I actually found selling to be really easy and was was pretty immediately disabused of this idea that architects can only do architecture. Um, that was a huge learning from the pivot. But the second was that as I started to get more and more questions from other individuals about how I had made the switch, I found that it is actually something that can be taught, but really even less than that, you know, it is just something that we all have the inherent ability to do. Um, we just don't have the exposure to the variety of, of roles that exist kind of adjacent to architecture out there in the world, partly mm-hmm. because in our architecture education, we're taught that there is a kind of singular goal, which is to become a principal or a firm owner or a star architect or a star designer. Um, and so I was always sort of blinded by that singular goal, right, of going to work for whatever firm it might be, you know, Herzog and Demeron or OMA or Bjork Ingalls or, you know, even mm-hmm. some of the, the more niche firms, you know, out here on the on the East Coast or the bigger, more commercial firms. Um, and I say East Coast, but I'm in fact on the West Coast. Um, I do think it's, uh, you know, it was an amazing learning for me in the pivot that there were probably 150 other titles that I was qualified to have. Um, and that was a big component of uh, making the switch. Mm-hmm. And and what you just said triggers a couple of comments in my mind. One is that architecture school perpetuates that great lie that um, you can aspire to be a star architect and be one of the chosen few in the world that really dominates the press and the conversation. But the truth is that most people will never be that either because they don't have what it takes or they even just not the motivation to put in the work that you need to put to get to that level. That's the thing you never learn in school. Um, I'd love and- to add to that actually, and just say that, you know, one of the things that we don't learn that is part of that pathway is marketing yourself and selling yourself and being sort of, you know, self aggrandizing in the way that Bjork Ingels has done to mm-hmm. make himself the most strongly marketed architect in the world. It's mm-hmm. not, uh, you know, it's not by happenstance that he has entire departments of people dedicated to business development and marketing and social and all of these things. You know, it's not just for the love of his work. Yeah. And the other lie, oh, I mean, there's a few more to talk about, but the other mm-hmm. big one is that those things happen in a vacuum and it's a single genius accomplishing all of that. Bjark Engels. I kind of knew intuitively, but when I went to his website for the first time a number of years ago and looked at the staff and how many partners there were and how big the firm was, I realized like he's just a figurehead. It's not to say he does nothing. I'm sure he does a lot and kind of steers the ship in the right direction. But there's an army of part from partners to draftsmen who do all the work and make it happen. And it's not just it wouldn't nothing, none of that would exist without that uh, collaborative effort. And that's the other lie that's kind of perpetuated. Um, and speaking of sales, that was that's perfect segue to my other comment. As you said, you know, you started as a business development manager or whatever the exact title was. Good salesmanship is the same as good as being a good designer. You have to go in and find out what your clients are up against and provide the solution, except that in one, uh, you're actually designing the solution. In the other, you're just selling a product or service that 
fits what that client is looking for. And so good salesmanship is not about pushing a product or service onto just about anyone. It's finding the right type of clients that are a good fit for what you're offering, whatever that may be. And um, and that's often misunderstood about sales. And I think it's also another issue in the industry. And I've been talking about this for years, but it bears repeating. And I will repeat it until all architecture firms finally understand that. Selling yourself is not a dirty job. Like it can be a very fulfilling thing if you do it right. If you If you learn how to market yourself the right way and convey the right message and find the right clients, can actually be very fulfilling. Um, so all of that is very interesting, but next question I have for you is why do you think architects are seemingly so well-suited to tackle all kinds of careers? When we start our education, we start by unlearning everything that we know about design. Mm -hmm. So when you go into architecture school, they teach you that a line is when you're sketching, not some back and forth jittery sort of approximation of a, a mark between two points. It's two ends and a beautiful, sinewy, delicate, slightly trembling maybe segment in between the two. And you start to break down everything that you know into those elements, right? And you learn that a box is both a solid and a void. You don't even get to buildings until much farther down the line. Mm -hmm. We yeah, can you, do. You learn to draw buildings before you design anything. Of course, of course, and you learn to see the world as you know these sort of elements that can be manipulated and played with and and turned over and and made into experiences. But we sort of learn these like scaleless design elements that can be applied to not only a whole range of products, but also a whole range of processes. One of the things that I do on a daily basis here at my, my work in Adidas is I am constantly on the receiving end of ideas of innovation that have yet to find a sort of mechanism for being realized. And what I mean by that is I get a lot of really wonderful, thoughtful, creative moments and part of my job is to learn what the intention is behind it and to then find a way of resolving it, whether it's through a piece of machinery or technology or uh, 3D modeling or visualization, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And all of that can be done regardless of whether it's a building or not. And I learned all of these things in relationship to the built environment, but every architect wants to design a chair. You know, every every interior designer, you know, goes through and and designs a, you know, a nook or a space or a bench or something related to the human body. And, you know, that's a that's a different scale than a building as a whole. And then we've all explored this idea of master planning. And, you know, you start to branch out into these other sectors that might seem obvious as adjacencies. But when people come to me and they ask about transitioning into tech, their greatest fear is just. Hmm, like I, you know, I don't have the language to speak, right? I don't really understand what it means to work in the tech industry. Mm -hmm. And once you make that translation of terminology, it actually opens up that, oh my goodness, you know, there are so many parallels between designing your layout for your crit, designing this sort of wireframe and doing that for a website, which you might have mm -hmm. done for your portfolio, or doing this for uh, you know an application or an experience, which you might have done if you were ever designing a museum or curating art, or any of these things, right? There are so many kind of unspoken adjacent pathways, mm -hmm. but the core skill is that architects can learn faster than anyone else that I know. And you go to school to learn not to really become a professional, which is why we still have to get licensed afterwards, which is why you still have another 3,000, 5,000 hours. Or, you know, in the UK, you've got part one, two, and three. And it's it's maddening for most people. But mm -hmm. I would do the degree again anytime. If I had to go back and go in reverse and start all over, I would, I would get my architecture degree again. Oh, you would? That's interesting because I wouldn't. Hmm. No. Why not? I um I think I would go in the trades. I would find a trade that 
speaks to me and just learn to work with my hands. And so either fix or make stuff, which is related to design in some sense, because mm -hmm. you're problem solving. But I have this unrealized dream of becoming a motorcycle mechanic. Um, How very zen of you. And uh, yeah, <laughs> well said. <laughs> and uh, or and even beyond that, like that's the first step. But beyond that, I think the ultimate goal would be like to learn how to design uh, uh, motorized objects. You know, mm. like like custom make my own motorcycles. That would be really cool. I would say that your degree would facilitate that better than just going to a school for trade because when you have this sort of like broad understanding of the world mm -hmm. and you can look at the relationship between not just the motorcycle and the human, but the motorcycle and the road and the context of other vehicles and the climate and all of these things, like you, you have a more holistic view on the problem. It took you longer to get there <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And yeah. if you do end up going down that route, I will be first in line for a custom bike. But I would say that um, it's very very unlikely that you could leave architecture school without some of those skills of making. And I feel that every day I'm, I'm always in the wood shop or, you know, tinkering with something or assembling something. And, and I really would attribute all of that to my, to my studies. Yeah. That's a very good point. Damn. I didn't expect you to be so wise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I I look old for a reason. It's, I have I have a lot of wisdom, but uh, I don't know. It's taken years off my life to get there. So, hey, you you can't have everything, but uh, I think it's a good a good thing to have. Um, so let's talk about Adidas a little bit. And how did you end up there? Well, as I mentioned, I went through this series of uh, interviews where I just you know I realized that architecture was just not going to be for me, um, and part of it was. You know, that I, I left the two best universities in the United States with very expensive degrees and, you know, was getting um, offers for employment at, you know, less than a tenth the cost of my education. So that was really jarring. And with a lot of student debt in tow, I really felt like, you know, this is just not going to be a sustainable way for me to to build my life and also not really the kind of work that I was um you know, discovering that I was interested in doing. So when I moved out here, I applied to everything. I applied to game design companies and here being Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, I applied to uh, Nike, which is headquartered here yeah. um, and interviewed with them. And I applied to Adidas. Um, and the difference and the sort of the winning factor for Adidas was that they loved all of the skills that I brought. They weren't just interested in my data visualization or coding, which, which Nike was, mm -hmm. they weren't just interested in my ability to, uh, create plans and sections and so on, which architecture firms were, they were curious about my mold making and casting and 3d modeling and rendering and my interest in new materials and my interest in exploring, you know, tree houses and climbing and sport and all of these things. Mm -hmm. And when someone holds out open arms and says, we want all of you, that's the place where you should go. And I consistently tell that to, to clients about of architecture is, is that, you know, it is, it is a two-way selection process. And when you, you are honest about what you bring to the table and someone appreciates it in that way, it's, uh, it's kind of like a, you know, a very magical, very rare thing. Yeah, it is um, because both on the employer side and on the employee side, because I see it every day, people just, I wouldn't say they, they hire people or take jobs out of fear, but it's more like, okay, I got to pay the bills. And there's a lot of like very pedestrian practical considerations that I'm not dismissing. They're there for everyone, but in an ideal world, people, more people would do what you did, which is, you know, go balls out on what you believe in and hope that you get the job you want <laughs> or you make your own job. You know, sometimes that's Absolutely. how it works. Um, so was there a special specific title that you were hired, like a job description mm -hmm. you were hired for? Yeah. Um, much to uh, what I'm sure my will be my HR's dismay. I will say that the job descriptions here are horrendous and mm -hmm. very, 
um, very lacking in kind of the truth of, uh, of the work. So I always encourage people to reach out, you know, make contact, network with the company, try and get in touch with the hiring team and have a conversation because very often the bureaucracy behind uh, creating a job description and creating a headcount and a new role in a company um, really hurts the understanding on the on the applicant side. So mm-hmm. the job description that I applied for was senior manager of the Maker Lab. And this was something I thought, okay, well, I've done a lot of fabrication. I've worked with a lot of tools. I have a great model making experience. This sounds like a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't actually get an interview for that role. What I did get an interview for was a position called technical manager of footwear technologies or something like that, product creation technologies. And I went to that call with the recruiter and about 15 minutes in, I said, look, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't really know what the job is. I'm very flattered to be interviewing, but um, I don't think I even applied to this job. And uh, the recruiter's name was Brian, a fantastic friend of mine since since then over the last six years. And he mm-hmm. said, no, no, don't don't worry about it. He said, I, I think you're a good fit for this role. And I said, great, tell me a little bit more about it. And it turns out that the role was basically uh, a blend of what we call um, horizontal positions. And so in the mm-hmm. company, there are verticals, running, yeah. basketball, soccer, you know, all of these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are horizontals and, and basically floating resources that can be utilized by any given team for a specific project. Um, And this position was one of those horizontal roles under a technologies team that had both this fabrication side, the maker lab and the sample studio now, Mm -hmm. and a digital technology side, which I was hired to be on, which really focused on my Rhino 3D modeling skills, my use of Grasshopper, and my interest in things like Unity for VR and you know, my creative, uh, sweet skills. So all of my Adobe work finally paid off. And so Mm -hmm. it was, it was an excellent role. And, uh, and I am still on that team, uh, have since been promoted to lead a a team of about six or seven. Mm -hmm. And I've got, uh, computational designers. I have pattern makers, which is like the sort of 2d CAD of footwear in many ways. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's just an absolute pleasure. And I love, I love what I do. And so if if LinkedIn is correct, your title is Senior Manager of Digital Technologies. Yes, and LinkedIn is correct. So what does that mean? (laughs) So what that means is that as a senior manager, I'm responsible for um, other members of the team, other experts who are far better at these technical skills than I am. So I have grasshopper experts and experts in Rhino and Uh, plenty of other different kinds of technologies, including like Intimoto and Swatch and lots of lots of various things. But my responsibility is to make sure that all of the barriers are removed from the work that they're doing, that all the expectations are set, and also that when necessary, we can sit down and I have enough understanding from my technical background to propose kind of elegant solutions to very complex problems. And that's my favorite thing to do is to sit down and say, if we use this tool or abuse it in this way, and we sort of disregard the traditional notion of of how we might use a computerized stitching machine, for example, Mm -hmm. we could actually trick it into doing this very cool thing for us. Mm. Now, go figure that out. Right. And so there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of work with our innovation team. So I spend a lot of time uh, being the bad guy in meetings and saying, like, that doesn't really make logical sense. And they say, no, no, it's going to be really cool. Don't worry about it. And of course, then I'm the one who's who's worrying about it. And uh, and it ends up being a a really good, uh, fun opportunity. And, And I think of myself very much like the the civil engineer to the architect very often saying, mm-hmm. hmm, I'm the, not sure that that's going to stand up. And they're going, no, 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 it's definitely going to stand up. The voice of reason, right? <laughs> yes. And then you're left uh, trying to figure out how to make it all work. Um, yes. So do you approach teams with ideas and solutions or they approach you with problems and then you're left to solve them? Oh, a little bit of both. What an amazing question, though. I love that question. So we work a lot like a small business. We have about 25 people in total in our advanced creation team. A big part of what we do is 
sort of creating solutions and shopping them around the business, right? For things that we sort of identify as needs. And that I think is what keeps our team growing because the Mm -hmm. team has gone from about, you know, 12 to 15 when I started to, you know, 27 or 30. And Mm -hmm. that has been a big part of my trajectory is, hey, this looks like an issue. Why don't we jump in? But I will say that what keeps the lights on really is the ongoing list of problems or, you know, I guess a really just a lack of cohesive um, understanding of tools like 3D in the rest of the business. So we get to be those specialists that people rely on. Um, And the reason why we're a horizontal team is because very often we can build a system for 80% of the work. But then there's 20% that we are just breaking all the rules, trying out new materials, you know, trying to get something up on the website or in an advertisement or make a, you know, a shoe that has an exploding axon as part of its delivery. And, you know, mm-hmm. we're a big part of making those things possible. So, uh, so when you say shop those ideas around, that's internally or you also internally. work with external businesses? Yeah, predominantly internally. Okay. I, I've thought so, but I wanted to clarify. So let's go back uh, to the idea of um, architects and their careers and um, maybe focus a little more on out of architecture. What are the biggest challenges facing the architects uh, practicing and non-practicing that you engage with? Honestly, that is an incredibly complex question. I think you've outlined a few, um, and we recently published a book that has a lot of these issues sort of very eloquently outlined Mm -hmm. in it. Um, And to name a few, I would say there is an issue with the architecture being, you know, or sorry, I'm going to reframe that as there is an issue that architecture was built by the gentry and the privileged class and people who could afford to really take the time to think eloquently through these problems of design, beauty, and aesthetic and -hmm. and functional solution. And we have not designed a business around uh, compensating for that. So it still requires sacrifice, right? And we tell people that they have to pay their dues. Clients come to us both inside and outside of architecture having paid plenty of dues and not gotten really much in return. So we've sort of formulated a business that says, look, if you want to be a successful star architect, you need to have some wealthy friends who can buy a building from you, who you can go and design your grandmother's vacation home and all of these things, you know, that that'll get you some projects. If you want to do it the hard way and you want to go work for a firm, we're going to pay you a lot less because you're still learning right? We, as Mm -hmm. um, very frequently, we'll hear people say that they don't feel useful leaving school and going into an architecture firm. Mm -hmm. And I would simply say that maybe you're not useful to that firm, but that does not mean that you are not useful or valuable. So that's a big, big issue. We also have plenty of issues surrounding, you know, equal treatment, equal pay, the, you know, the way that we distribute work incredibly unevenly between genders and across different races. And it's our architecture has a huge amount of problems that are also shared by many other professions. So I won't, mm-hmm. I won't say that it's the only place those exist. Um, but these are reasons why people come to us. Um, you know, and I think the, you know, the latter part of it is just creative fulfillment. Uh, I would say that at least half, if not more of the, at this point, something like 800 plus clients are out of architecture and the thousands of conversations that we've had have circled around this idea that we were kind of sold something in school that Mm -hmm. we're not getting when we go into the working world. Um, And, you know, by way of example, my um, incredible, you know, I'll call her my mentor, but she's also my wife, has told me many times that uh, you know, in conversations with her leadership, you know, they've said, look, you're, you're a great designer, but, but we're just, you're, you're not going to get to design for another 20 years, you know, and that was before she left to go start a vineyard. And I think that was a great decision because she gets to make all the creative decisions and drink wine at work. But, um, it's, you know, it's an incredible thing to hear that someone went to school to be a phenomenal designer. And then they go into a position 
in a design profession where they're now learning to be very technical. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad thing, but it's also not transparent and it's not honest when we tell students that, you know, this is what you need to know to be successful. Is it a challenge for firms to recognize where someone's talent lies? It is a challenge in that most firms, and I really appreciate you asking this question, most firms do not specialize their architects. They have architects Mm -hmm. or they have interior designers, but you do not have very specific roles for those people. Now, that's not to say that someone isn't sort of touted as the best visualizer and they might might get all the visualization or rendering work mm-hmm. or someone is a better BIM modeler or BIM manager and someone is a little bit better at doing the plans and all of these things. Mm-hmm. But we expect you to do everything, to be able to do everything. And by not specializing people, you also go into a firm and you are beholden to do the work that they have set aside for you already, which is horrendous. You know, Mm -hmm. you should be able to go in and say, this is what I love doing. I love model making, or I love building with my hands, or I love this part of architecture. And yet we require architects to see through the entire building process, which can take five years. That's a long Mm -hmm. time, especially for a young person. You're asking them to come out of school, spend another five years on a single project before they really know how they feel about any given part of the process. That's a tough ask. It's a tough ask, but it's such a complex profession that I'm having a hard time imagining it wouldn't be almost necessary to do, maybe not for five years, but two or three years when you get out of school to kind of understand how, you know, similar to you being, uh, well, somewhat versed in all the things your team is specialized in, but uh, without knowing all the details, but so you can be conversant enough to have intelligent conversations with the experts. Sure. But But, I will tell you that that role that I have is not every role in the company. I have a role that is paired with another 10 experts who are very specific in the function that they serve and very good at their work. Mm -hmm. And in our sample studio, we have people who do even narrower bands of work who are really good at adhesing and gluing things together or who are really good at stitching. And we don't expect those people to be able to do or understand all those tasks. And they don't all want to either. Yeah. So I think, I think the issue of specialization is uh, it relates to specialization at the firm level as well, because most architecture firms are completely averse to specializing. I would even say terrified of it because Mm -hmm. they think that they can be all things to all people. And I've realized through the mentorship of some really smart people over the last few years that the more you're specialized, uh, yeah, the more you narrow down your potential pool of clients, but also you're going to be sought out way more for your expertise. So it's kind of a fine balance and you can't go overnight, okay, I'm going to be the expert at X. You have to kind of build towards that. And it also, what people often take it to mean is that you don't take on any other kind of work. If it comes to you, that's absolutely not true. You should, and if you want, take all the work that comes to you. It just means that you're not looking for it and you're trying to specialize. So I always said, imagine you're, um, you want to be the best coffee shop designer in the world. Hmm. If you set out to do that, people would literally fly you all over the world to design their flagship cafes in Buenos Aires, in Mexico City, in Shanghai wherever, Mumbai, because they recognize the value and they might have seen your first project that, you know, and then that's where you have to be a little bit of a Bjark Ingalls and you have to learn how to promote yourself as well. Sure. Or Um, you look around and you find a place that does that work. And I guarantee you, I know people who have worked for the Starbucks retail design team and they have senior directors and VPs who are responsible for exactly what you're talking about. And they get paid incredibly well and they're very highly sought after for the Mm -hmm. work that they do. Yeah, exactly. Or conversely, you can broaden your expertise, but then you narrow down your market. So you say, I'm going to be 
I'm going to be a, an industrial architect. So I'm going to do all the industrial building in my own area, like my metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. And then you try to be the, you don't have to be the best in the world. You just have to be the best in that area. And it's wide enough that there's enough different businesses that need industrial buildings. So it, it's a little less specialized, but it's specialized in terms of market. And so when you said firms are not specializing their staff, it brings me back to that issue. It's like somehow specialization is seen as a, as a, a, a unconscionable risk or a dangerous territory to get in when if you do it the smart way, it might be a bit of a challenge at first because you have to build that image and recognition. But once you do, the work is just going to come your way. It's like if you're being the, one of the local motor- motorcycle mechanics, if you're the one that's honest, does the work on time and doesn't overcharge and um, you know still do does a great job and maybe occasionally throw something in for your clients, people are going to come back to you because that's, you know, we all know how mechanics are and that's a rare way to be for mechanics. You know, it's not necessarily always that hard to be one of the best. You don't have to be the best. You have to be good enough that people recognize that and come to you. Um, So it's not really a question. It's a bit of a comment, but I think it's important to talk about because uh, that fear of specialization, I think, is paralyzing way too many firms and way too many people when uh, it could be a boon to either a firm for, for a firm to grow or to, for someone to build a great career. Kind of like you did, you know? <laughs> Thank you. I take that as a huge compliment. Um, so you mentioned you have this consultancy called Out of Architecture. What are you looking to accomplish with it? That's an interesting question. Um, we're about five years into the project that is out of architecture. And it did start from um, pretty much the questions that you're asking, which is many people reached out and said, hey, how did you, why, why Adidas? Why would they accept you? What, you know, what could possibly be the match here? And after having those conversations, the tone shifted a little bit more to why you and more, how can I do this? And what I began to realize was to our conversation of specializing, there was a very small niche of people that really needed help. And those people were architects who were looking to leave architecture. Mm-hmm. Now, I will caveat this by saying many people think that our goal is to get architects out of architecture. And I will say that that is not the stated goal of out of architecture. What it is, is to help people define what they want to get out of architecture. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is leaving architecture, but it's also taking something with you, no matter what that looks like, right? Because you Mm -hmm. are taking skills, you are taking experiences away from the profession. And sometimes you are turning around and, and supporting the profession from another lens. So we mentioned retail design, right? Which is a different way of practicing architecture, just not at a traditional firm. Mm-hmm. But then there are all manner of other roles. And we've talked about a few already, but mm-hmm. the goal of Out of Architecture is first and foremost to help individuals who are feeling lost in their careers find roles that are both challenging as well as, and yes, the spotlight is is very dramatic on me, um, that are challenging, creatively fulfilling, and that pay well and Mm -hmm. pay a respectful living wage. And those are really core tenants to to out of architecture. Whether or not those jobs exist at a firm is completely up to the architecture profession itself. And we have placed people and helped them find jobs inside of architecture firms. But more often than not, people have been there, done that for anywhere from a couple of months to five years to 15 years to, I kid you not, 50 years is our longest practicing client. And they just say, look, you know, I'm I'm done. I've I've gotten everything that I can out of the profession, or it's taken everything from me, and I'm I'm ready to change. But I think you asked, you know, what the goal is, what, what are are we looking to accomplish? And Mm -hmm. it's really just about helping individuals. Um, It is a business, 
but it is not a money-making business. I will say that. We do charge for our time. We value the time and the work that we do, but we reinvest it into things like the launch of our podcast recently called Tangents, which mm-hmm. talks about stories of people who have left architecture. That is you know, something that we invest in to help and get out to clients. Mm-hmm. Um, the book that I mentioned is also another project, which is certainly not a money-making endeavor for anyone who has published a book with a traditional publisher. You will know that it is a net, um, <clears throat> not positive, let's say. And, you know, these are just ways of, of communicating with a broader and broader community mm-hmm. that has, um, that has really ex- expanded over the years. Yeah. Books are expensive, but it's also a great uh, marketing tool, right? <laughs> We're I trying mean, to use it as it, a great it marketing is tool. <laughs> because they're in people's mind. And I don't think that will ever change. Books are, um, token of authority. Like if you've written mm-hmm. a book, you literally written a book on. Sure. And you know? it's thought leadership in a way that I think is important to us yeah. um, because we want the messaging for this, this transition of the architectural profession to be architects are amazing. They are valuable. They are incredible. They are talented and they can do whatever it is that makes them happy even if that thing is not traditional architecture. Yeah. And smart architects will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a beautiful monograph, not because it makes money, but because it gives them a position of authority when they're trying to market sure. themselves. That's absolutely true. So when someone hires you, what do they get? Mm, good question. Well, that can be from a few different lenses. The primary is if you are someone who's looking to make a change in their career, and you come to us, we mostly provide one-on-one coaching and consulting for your next step. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that is as simple as I'm going to leave my job. I'm looking for a new role. I want to move into a position in product design or a position in retail design or a position you know, working in space architecture or on yacht design. These are all real examples of people that we've supported. Um, And those are really interesting because a lot of that is people coming to us for our insight, for some discussion about what those roles might look like, for access to our network, which has become very vast and open to the idea that we have a lot of really strong, really amazing candidates who are looking to help find jobs for. Mm -hmm. So you're coming to us for, for all of those things. Um, But we also now have seen recently this sort of flip side, which is, you know, we are not a recruiting or or headhunting company, but we do have companies that are coming to us asking for us to share and post roles for them, asking for us to help find individuals who are sort of statedly looking to leave one thing and go into something else that might be considered at least more interesting for them. And so we have companies that are looking for very unique candidates, whether it's somebody with architectural experience, but who wants to practice in a different setting Mm -hmm. or companies that are just seeing the messaging that we're putting out about how amazing architecture skills are. And rather than having to hire a graphic designer, a 3D modeler, someone who can do their web design, someone who can do their social media, they come to us for one person who fits that bill. And that person is the superstar of their company. So we're starting to get clients from that other side who are asking us um, for support in recruiting and and interesting uh, positions and roles to fill. So that's been an exciting uh, two-way street, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting. So you you briefly mentioned the book um, and and what it is, but what is the key lesson you'd want someone to take away from reading the book uh, called Out of Architecture, correct? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. The full title is Out of Architecture, The Value of Architects Beyond Traditional Practice. And that is that is the message, is that there is value to your degree and your skills beyond traditional practice. That's mm-hmm. the core message. And I, I really genuinely believe that so many people are afraid of that, afraid of making that transition or afraid that they're not good enough compared to people who have gone and studied something, you know, like 
industrial design I hear all the time or, oh, like, you know, someone who's really studied human computer interaction. And I don't want to devalue those degrees and say that they're not as good as an architecture degree, but they're also not the only way of looking at those problems. Mm -hmm. And I hope that someone would pick up the book and if nothing else, after the first few chapters, feel validated in their experiences and feel excited about design again. I think it's very fair to say that everybody goes through that phase in architecture of what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? And I think that some people come out the other side just saying, well, this is it. This is all I know how to do. But I would hope that even if you're an architect listening to this and you pick up the book, the first few chapters are this narrative of falling in love with architecture. And mm -hmm. it should reinvigorate you and re-excite you and make you feel like, wow, this was actually a great decision. You know, maybe I'm not in the perfect job for me right now, mm -hmm. but that at some point, you know, I can and have the ability to, to take this elsewhere. Do you think the... I wouldn't say lack of trust because I don't think that's the issue, but the um, design being seen by most people who aren't designers as this frivolous thing that can be easily dispensed with. The reason why so many people um, don't find quite the fulfillment they're looking for in their design careers. Is, is, is there so much of an assault on the value of design constantly, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that people just get dispirited and say, uh, throws, throw their hands up in the air and say, I don't want to deal with this shit anymore? I saw an article um, posted on the UK Sunday Times website this week. Um, mm -hmm. I believe it was, damn the architects, the rich man's folly something to that effect. Yeah. And the the context of the the op-ed piece or whatever it is, I won't call it an article, was mm -hmm. all architects are bastards who overcharge and steal your money. <laughs> now, that's not a great way, uh not a good look for the profession, let's say. Um and I do think that opinion is out there, but I genuinely do not think that that is the main sentiment. I think we as an architecture profession, and I'll include myself in that, point to those articles and say, look, this is why we're underpaid. I think that is a load of horse shit and mm -hmm. a big excuse for firms to say, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. That is why we're underpaying you. Because as soon as you step out and you look around at all the work that other people are doing, let's take a production agency for, for advertising and film and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Creative agency, studio-like process, long hours, a lot of smack talking, building things that don't work the first time around, creative tool set, right? Some technology, some motion, graphic design, all of these things. They make out like bandits because they charge for solutions that other people can't come up with. Mm -hmm. So... When you have a company like Coke or Pepsi or, you know, Walmart or whatever it is, and they come to you and ask for a creative solution, you get to charge them whatever it is that you want. And the problem is for architects, that number is super low. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Because we think that someone else is going to do it for less. And that's right. I mean, that's absolutely right. You know, and I'm, architects I'm undercut each other all the time. I'm with you on that one. You're, I think you're right on the money, but it's a bit of a chicken and egg question in the sense that, yes, architects are absolutely 100% responsible for how much they get paid because they get to decide how much they charge. And if they decided to charge what their true worth was, they would just go seek the clients that are willing to pay for that. They wouldn't, yeah, absolutely. They wouldn't fuck with the small potatoes that nickel and dime them at every turn uh so that is very true mm. but i do think that there's um i'm gonna use a very broad analogy and i might piss some people off doing so but the managers mba types i think there's a general sentiment i could be wrong and if you can prove me wrong i'm happy to admit that well i have an mba so i'll be curious to hear how you finish this I, th I think there's a general sentiment <laughs> that Design is a uh, is uh, 
is nice to have, but it's not necessary. It's a bit of a frivolous expense. And I mean, not all MBAs are that way. And there's a lot of MBAs that have design degrees. So they probably understand design better than anyone else and its value. But in, in the more, I don't know, again, I could be wrong. So if you can well, put me wrong, I'm happy to to hear your argument. But I think there's a bit of a sentiment that design Less and less so, but still to this day, it's, uh, it's a nice to have that can be dispensed with. Yeah. Arno, I think you're right if it was 15 or 20 years ago. But I think that sentiment has shifted dramatically um, in other professions, um, especially in the professions that pull in big chunks of money per person, right? There's a low labor count for something mm -hmm. like a tech company. And mm -hmm. they are valuing the experience, the design of their tools and interfaces really dramatically. I mean, those, those have huge potential. And we, there's lots of architects that have gone to work for these big tech companies doing design that, you know, doesn't take any more or less time or really any more or less skill to put together a really good user interface. It's just a matter of, well, what are we, what are we providing to the client with this? And I think that's a big question for architects is how do you explain to the client the value? Because at the end of the day, people are willing to pay for something that's going to bring them value. You know, mm -hmm. like if you could spend $500 and for that $500, you get $800 of gold, you're going to do it because you're getting more than you're putting in, right? Mm -hmm. But when you design a building and you say, this building is going to provide you happiness or a sense of calm, that is a lot harder of a sell than saying, the design and the layout of this building is going to increase the flow of business into your practice. And because you've spent this money on good architecture and good design, everyone's going to walk in that front door and you're going to make 60% more money. If you can say that and you can underline that 60% and say, look, this is millions of dollars a year. And over five years, you're going to quadruple the money you're spending on this building. Someone's going to lay down a handful of cash and tell you that they would love to have you design their building. So mm -hmm. framing is a huge part of why architecture does or doesn't sell i think yeah and so we go we go back to the idea of business development and sales if you learn how to do it well because i tell clients all the time there's a i'm not going to name names but there's a client that i used to work with who charged in it was a few years ago so it might be different now but at the time she would charge i think let's say 350 bucks for the initial client consultation where she would mm ask about their projects and get to know them and maybe sketch a couple ideas on paper and look at what's possible to do uh, given the zoning of the area and whatever, like simple stuff. And I kept telling her for years, you need to charge four times as much. You need to charge $1,500 and tell your clients, if you hire me, I will take that off of the fee. But th then at that point, you send a signal of, okay, my time is valuable. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to meet with you for a couple hours, but you got to pay up. And then if you decide to hire me, then it's going to be worth your while because we already have done a bunch of work and and it establishes the, the, the architect as the expert who's valuing their own time. And it also commits the client to something instead of saying, oh, I'll do it for cheap or even free. And then people don't feel committed to it because they have no skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And the Absolutely. difference between 350 and 1500 bucks can be quite significant psychologically speaking. It's still not a lot amount of a big amount of money. But in people's minds like, oh, 1500 bucks it's like you know, half for mortgage or something. So it's not insignificant anymore. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that that shift that mental shift needs to happen in more firms and people need to realize that Yes, they will lose some work if they ask for what they really want to get paid, but they will also eventually find clients that truly value what they're offering. Mm -hmm. um, and and I have this, this thing with my own work where I always try to find ways to um, at least tie part of my compensation with results. 
So if I can get the clients for some kind of result that we agree upon together before the work starts, uh, then I get paid more. And if not, I still get paid for my time and, and thinking, but um, uh, if I get them the result they need and they res- it helps them make more money or close more work or whatever, then it's only fair that I get paid more because my work's more valuable, right? And I think architects need to think, start thinking that way more uh, on a regular basis because that's how they're going to transition to from the scarcity mindset to the abundance mindset where they can go to a client and just slap their hand on the table and say, this is what we charge. Take it or leave it, you know, and then demonstrate their value at the same time. Obviously you can't just, um, you know, do that and walk away, but the learning to demonstrate your value uh, starts where, where with the fees and how much you want to charge. And then you can justify that by saying, well, we're going to put our money where our mouth is and get you the results you're looking for. And then some. Absolutely. My dad says it's the jobs that you take that'll kill you, not the ones you don't. And so I always keep that in mind when we're meeting with clients and, you know, I tell them, yeah, it's going to be $750, the base fee for an initial consult. And they go, oh man, well, you know, what are you going to give me for, for that? And, you know, and I say, well, you know, this conversation that we've been having for the last 30 minutes is, is pretty representative of the work that we do. You know, if you found value in it and you'd like to continue and you always know when people go, absolutely. Yes. I, I completely want to work with you. You know, they're going to be great clients. And when they start down the pathway of, well, okay, you know, what's your success rate? You know, how quickly will I be able to do this and this? And, you know, the more, that you see someone hesitating, I think it's a good indicator that maybe that's not a good fit. You know, maybe they're really, yeah, go ahead. No, I was being interrupted, but keep going. Sorry. No worries. That's okay, Arno. Um, we're kind of coming to the end and actually I have to um, excuse myself very briefly here. So yes. we can come to the last part. Uh, so do you have to go now or you want to wrap up now? We can do your last your last couple of questions, and I'll take the time to show the book for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I'm that's pretty much all the questions I had. But as we were talking, something came to me. Do you think uh, an architecture degree is the MD, MBA of the future? That's a very interesting question. I think the architecture degree is a better general education than any liberal arts degree. I would recommend it highly for someone who doesn't necessarily know the pathway that they wanna go, but is interested in learning a bunch of different things because Mm -hmm. it has a huge number of valuable skills, but it's not an MBA. Having gotten an MBA, I will tell you that it is maybe more valuable to me and the kinds of work that I want to do than the MBA, but an understanding of the core fundamentals of business is so lacking in architecture that there is no way that an architecture degree as it stands currently could replace an MBA. That's a good answer. So how can people connect with you, engage you, or buy your book? Well, if you want to connect with me, I am obsessed with LinkedIn and I am super happy to connect and uh, and meet people and chat so you're welcome to find me there. Um, for Out of Architecture, we have both the presence on LinkedIn as well as Instagram at Out of Architecture. Um, if you want to come to us for pretty much anything that we do through that, whether it's uh, to engage with our new podcast called Tangents, you can find that on our Out of Architecture website. Um, you can also purchase the book or the audiobook for those of you who like listening to longer format audio. Um, we have that available on Audible. You can purchase it through our website or through Amazon directly um, in print or on Kindle. And I think if you want to engage with us, just please come by, say hello. Um, we are always open to having conversations like this. And uh, Arno, it has been a pleasure um, to sit here and have this one with you. Pleasure is all mine. Uh, can they reach out to you, get free sneakers? 
<laughs> no, you cannot get free sneakers, but I would love to have you support Adidas. Um, and we always have really cool new products coming out. So for that, um, the website, and you'll want to write this down, is adidas.com, believe it or not. Um, so no. <laughs> Really hard to remember. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. It was a, a really interesting conversation, hopefully the first of many. Thank you, Arno. I would love to have a round two and uh, I hope that you have a great rest of the day. Thanks, you too. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.